Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, um, we're off for just a little bit for the Christmas break. So in that uh, spirit, uh, my question for you today is, I'm dreaming of a... Normally, genie would come to mind, but probably White Christmas. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. No, dreaming of a yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Of, of a new year with new Patreon subscribers uh, at uh, like Patreon.com. What, what do you got for me? Well, I thought in spirit of the new year, I would just go with uh, a lyric from uh, some song or a song. Go, okay. uh, go with a lyric from a song, and I'll keep it simple. Eric, let the good times roll. Well, let the good times start when we get more contributors through Patreon.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would be some good times. Some good times. All right. Well, um, we're doing a little bit of time traveling here between the 2018 and 2019. Uh, We recorded a couple interviews in 2018, right before the Christmas season. And now we're... We have, uh, we've learned, we learned how to harness tachyon <laughs> particles. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Heisenberg compensators. Oh no, wait, that's, that's transport. That's the, for the transporters. Flux capacitors. Yeah, yeah, Flux there you capacitors. go. Uh, so, oh, I, I found, <laughs> speaking of that, uh, I, I think my brother-in-law or somebody showed me that, uh, one of the O'Reilly's or checker one of the the auto parts stores national chains has a flux capacitor uh, no way on their um website in their catalog on their website um uh, but it's it's listed as currently unavailable <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome it would also be great if they sold it for 88 gajillion dollars there you go <laughs> gigawatt gigadollars right. <laughs> uh okay uh, so we recorded this uh, this interview actually way back in December when the OSAC meeting was in town, was in the Phoenix area, and got to talk to Mark Stolero, uh, who's been kind of running the whole OSAC program for the past few years. And I uh, hope you guys really enjoyed that uh, interview uh, coming right up. Um, you know, that was only like three weeks ago. <laughs> It feels like forever ago. It do, it actually does feel like a long time ago, but it was only like three weeks ago. <laughs> See what happens when we don't talk to each other every single week? Yeah, no kidding. It feels like forever. <laughs> There's a song in there somewhere, Glenn, I think. <laughs> yeah, I love song, I'm sure. <laughs> I, 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 I anticipate it being a country song when it's when it's all said and done. Mm, a country uh, love song. <laughs> About uh, a long-distance relationship between two podcasters talking about fingerprints. Mm. Um, <laughs> Someone should write that song. A listener should write that song. So before we get uh, into this interview, a uh, couple of things. Uh, so I want to remind everyone out there that uh, we are still looking for uh, new patrons for the show, uh, like we talked about here a minute ago, but also uh, new super fans uh, to kind of run different aspects of the podcast, looking to really expand out our community uh, to have just a, a broader base of people helping out. So it's not just me and Glenn doing our thing every week. Uh, we also, we already have super fan Becca taking care of the twits and tweets on Twitter and it uh, sounds like we've got another volunteer that's going to help start indexing episodes on c- certain topics. Uh, Superfan Gibby. Superfan Gibby. Yeah, that's going to be great. 
can't wait to get that out to our um, our listeners and our uh, our patrons, especially going back to those old episodes. Uh, I anticipate a, a, a lot of being able to find stuff that you know we talked about at some point, but it's hidden in the middle of some other good topic that it's not really obvious when we hit on some sort of I don't know. Uh, Dauber discussion when we're talking about something else. So uh, that's going to be a great resource, I think, for all our, our listeners. And, you know, actually another little area we need to fill in, if anyone's got a little bit of web design, you know, we've got the website, but we haven't really been able to invest in that. So anyone True. who likes running websites, that would be some really helpful expertise. Absolutely. The, the you know, I've been uh, putting episodes up on uh, on my website, and they've been up on the SoundCloud website and the you know now the Patreon website, uh, but to then add on yet another <laughs> website to manage is is uh, starting to stretch my uh, my websiteing time. Uh, so uh, yeah, that would definitely be a big help as well. All right, so without further ado, let's get into this interview that we did just a couple weeks ago with Mark Stolaro. Yeah, a really, really interesting person with an interesting career, and uh, I'm excited for the listeners to to hear about this. Uh, let's welcome our, our guest today. We are very honored and, and very pleased uh, to have this opportunity to not only be together interviewing a, another guest for the show, uh, but to have you in the room and not over the phone, but also uh, here at this OSAC meeting uh, it's just been a, a, a great week so far, and we're just so happy to have with us Mark Stolarov. So very much welcome to the Double It Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks, Eric and Glenn. It's really a joy for me to be here with you guys. So um, we're gonna we're gonna we got a lot to cover because you've had a, a long and storied and and very interesting career in many different aspects of forensics and law enforcement. So we're gonna just ask you to, I guess, maybe just briefly introduce yourself now, kind of what. In just uh, briefly, what, what your position is now. All right, sounds fair. So the listeners will probably know you um, through NIST, and so what do you do right now for NIST? Okay, I have a, a title within the Special Programs Office at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, I work in the Special Programs Office as a deputy director. Not very descriptive, and in fact, my primary duty is also wearing the hat of the director for OSAC affairs. So the primary responsibility I have is for keeping all of the trains running on time and handling the administrative and operational oversight of the infrastructure that runs OSAC as an organization. And, and I think listeners probably are, will be familiar with seeing you at IAI or the American Academy or various other large organizational meetings because usually there's some kind of OSAC update at these meetings or in the past it was OSACs are coming and <laughs> before that it was here's the NAS report and here's peak you know you you've always kind of followed these big events moving towards where we are moving today these OSAC groups that will help develop these standards it's true that probably in the last 10 years I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And um, the NAS report came out in February of 2013. I'm sorry, 2009. And I had just become employed at NIST. So I wow. 
Yes, I know. Timing. Yeah, so you know, with experience, what's new today? Yes. Well, yes. Well, you're you're going to be receiving something called the NAS report on forensic science, the status of forensic science, and it's very critical. Said to the director of NEST, who'd only been in that job six weeks, and he said, <laughs> I, "I know." So between the two of us, and um, a month later. He received a phone call from the White House, and uh, Dwayne Blackburn was the policy person and had in the portfolio forensic science. And because the NAS report was so critical and high profile, they said, oh, my God, we need to get somebody together to serve on the National Science and Technology Council in the subcommittee on forensic science, create one. So we were called to Dwayne's office in the executive office building downtown. And I was sitting across the table from a gentleman named Ken Melson, who is, um, for those of you who don't know, um, someone who was the former acting director of ATF, not the ATF lab, of ATF. And he was, yes, and he, before that, he was um, U.S. attorney for the the executive office of attorneys general, downtown and um, before that he was president of the american academy of forensic sciences so we're sitting in this room Dwayne blackburn and ken melson and me and Dwayne explained that they're going to set up this new subcommittee on forensic science under nstc and he said um, so you're going to represent doj mr melson and we need someone to represent nist and I said, I don't really have the authority to answer your question right now. Um, I'm not a policy guy at NIST, and I'm going to have to ask the director's permission. And he said, well, do you know uh, Mr. Melson? This is Mark Stollero. And, of course, I'd known Ken for 30 years. So um, we played it dumb and said, well, I don't know if I can work with this guy from DOJ. And he's, a, he's an attorney. So what happened was that um, in the evolution of the Subcommittee on Forensic Science. Great idea. We used a lot of the same techniques that we used in building OSAC, making sure that we had people from state and local community. Right. And there were 150 applicants. We had 50 positions that we were going to do, 150 feds and 50 state and local people. The problem is NSDC had never had a non-federal employee in a subcommittee before. So there was a workaround, strange, but apparently... An elected official from the state can serve as a member of NSTC hmm. or his designee. Designee, right. So we wrote letters to all 50 governors inviting them to be members. And if you're not able to join us, maybe you Clever. could have a designee. So we sent the letter out to all of the forensic scientists who had applied and said, take this to your mayor or governor and have them sign on your behalf. And we had 50 state and local people on the NSDC subcommittee. So we started generating, we had five subcommittees, five, yeah, five sub subcommittees, five task groups, working groups. And they started generating recommendations almost, well, certainly faster than the national commission did. Um, it was just, we had paper coming everywhere. So we sent it all to the White House, and I I loved working with the Obama administration, but one of the things that we discovered is that there were back channels, they were fighting very hard against any changes in forensic science, despite the NES report. Hmm. So we gave all these recommendations and crickets. We heard nothing. 
So we were in place from July of 2009 until 2012 with no response from the White House. Ken, <laughs> Ken Melson and I decided to meet in the basement of a parking garage and figure out what the hell we were going to do. And he said, I think I can get access to the DAG's office and we need to have a bilateral agreement between NIST and DOJ and just bypass the rest. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to develop a memorandum of understanding and we will have a policy side at DOJ and you guys do the standard side over at NIST. And a year later, we actually had Eric Holder and Pat Gallagher, the director of NIST, sign an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, that stood up the... National Commission on Forensic Science with 30 people and OSAC with whatever number of people we were going to do. So we needed money and um, Congress appropriated $3 million for OSAC and a million dollars for the commission. And we got started. Well, it all happened largely because of the NAS report. So you're wondering how we got to where we are and how I got to be the director for OSAC Affairs. There's a backstory behind how we got to where that point was. And it was largely a frustration with having to deal with White House politics. And I understand why White House politics is the way it it is. But we didn't know that starting at the beginning. And and, and that's great. It's such a great story because... I mean, people hear about this vague, oh, there's politics in this and politics in that. You gave a very concrete story of how politics have affected all of this yes. that the average listener had no idea was going on. I, I didn't know about, no, I didn't know about any of this. <laughs> and just how difficult that must have been to have all that, hey, we need to get moving on this. And like you said, just crickets because of you know, what's our exposure on this? What's the optics? What are we going to do here? And that's that's the side that we, as the practitioners, never have to deal with, but somehow you've gone from the practitioner level all the way up into this place that I would never, personally never want to dwell, but you have done this masterfully. Let's backtrack a little bit and, <laughs> and figure out your, let's go back well, to your yeah. early days so, and then how you how you got into that realm. There, there's a great article at NIST.gov, and I'm sure that if the listeners want to read this, they can just Google uh, Mark Stolaro, S-T-O-L-O-R-O-W, and Forensic Science is in My DNA. And like I said, it's at NIST.gov. And there is a fantastic picture of you back when you were a plainclothes officer in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Is that right? Yes. And uh, I really <laughs> encourage listeners to, to, to put in this Google search because the sport coat that you are sporting, so to speak, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, it, it fit with the times. Did you get that from Huggy Bear? <laughs> it was. Uh, that's called American Madras. <laughs> and um, you notice I wasn't working undercover. <laughs> that that would probably have been difficult to be an undercover cop with a Madras sport coat like that. But then, you know, at least it was a black tie. So it was an unstated tie, but the rest of the sport coat. And I, I people have said to me, do you have that sport coat? I, I want to buy that coat from you. Unfortunately, uh, over I, the years, I no longer have it. But right. I was 22 years old in that photograph. That's amazing. Are, so. are you from Michigan? Yes, I was born and raised in Michigan. All right, so this is what we have not discussed. When I found out you were working in Ann Arbor, you're not from Ann Arbor, are you? No, I'm. I was born and raised in Jackson, Michigan. But Jackson, I, Michigan. my undergraduate was at it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The prison, the the well known for their prison. Yes, Jackson, uh, uh, Jackson, Michigan prison, uh, Southern 
I think it's just called Southern Jackson Michigan Prison. Correctional yeah, facility or something. It, yes, in Jackson. Yeah. The, the world's largest walled prison. Mm. So My brother did a stint there. <laughs> I see. Not joking. <laughs> no, actually, I'm from Detroit. I grew up on the east okay. side of Detroit, Seven Mile and Ross, north of Hamtramck, that area. So oh, no, no kidding. I'm a, I'm a Detroiter. Oh, here we are. Yes, all right. And I survived Detroit public schools. All right. Well, worse than Detroit public schools is having been a Tiger fan for all of those years <laughs> that I was growing up in the 50s. Oh, my God. I, You know, and I was young enough to love that team come hell or high water and... Little did I realize that if you lived in New York or Boston or other places, well, not Boston in those days, you know, so we lived with the lions and the tigers, and it was just pathetic. It's no wonder I was so devastated as a, as a sports fan. <laughs> I've had to have therapy to get out of it, and it's because I grew up in Michigan. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. People that know me know I'm a huge Steelers <laughs> fan because of exactly that reason. Yeah, that's right. Because it's embarrassing to say I'm a diehard Lions <laughs> fan. It's, it's really tough to say. Right. At least the Tigers had a run in the 80s with Kirk Gibson and all those guys. Yeah. Anyway, uh, divergence. Well, so you, you, how long did you work as a, as a like a, an actual cop, cop? A beat cop? Yeah. All right. Well, there's another story that you don't have time in the 30 minutes we have <laughs> dedicated to this. Um, I, was, I grew up in the 60s. Right. So, you know, there were beatniks all over campus, and I never smoked marijuana in in college so unlike clinton who never inhaled which i find interesting i just never had an opportunity to smoke marijuana so you know here i am getting through my undergraduate um born in jackson so i was pretty square did you go to michigan state uh, no michigan university of michigan so i was a student in in now we've got problems Uh oh you're a state spartan Spartan. that's right all is forgiven Uh, um listen the spartans and and the wolverines together do collectively so badly we have to root for each other so it's okay um so in any case um i was on a student deferment a 2s deferment and they didn't yet have the lottery and in 1968, in March, I received a notice from my draft board saying, you're graduating in a couple months. Here is your notice for um, reporting to Jackson draft board for a physical. And I said, physical? That means I'm going to Vietnam. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't believe in the war. I, I wasn't against being a soldier or being a war, but not that particular war. So the options were pretty limited, and one of them was go to Canada. Well, that was before amnesty, so I could have gone to Canada, but the thought was I would grow old in Canada never being allowed back into the United States. This sounds crazy. And have to to live in Canada. Yes. Sorry, Canadian. No, no, no. I would probably have enjoyed living in Canada, but not... Not if I knew the only reason I was living and enjoying my life in Canada was that I was prohibited from coming back to the United States. <laughs> right. So that was a lot for a 22-year-old. So I thought, shit, there's going to be, oh, excuse me, you have to edit that out. Or not. Um, <laughs> there's got to be something else I can do. So here are my options. Enroll in med school, and you get an extended deferment. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a clause back then. Yeah, so you, oh, you, would, you would be deferred. You still get student deferment, but... When your graduate from medical school is done, you have to give to the military some time as a doctor. I, I figured that you'd go to the MASH unit yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So that was one possibility. The problem is everybody else at Michigan and every other male had figured that out. And without a 3.95 grade point, <laughs> you weren't going to get into med school. And yeah. I had nothing close to that, not even half that. 
So I thought, what am I going to do? Well, there was one other option, and that was, you've heard of chaplains. Yep. You could go to divinity school. Yep. Well, even for a 22-year-old, that was a bit of a stretch for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's not going to be my solution. Then um, a friend of mine said, you know, there are occupational deferments. Mm. And included among them are police and fire. I thought I could do that. I could I could spray a hose and and fight fire. So I went over to the fire station. I swear to God in Ann Arbor, and I said, "Okay, so I've wanted to be a fireman since I was this high. What do I have to do to be you know to get in, into your department and get a deferment?" I, I didn't say and get a deferment. I just said, you know, what, do, "What do I need to do to get this job?" And they said. Well, all you have to do is fill out this application, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, well, I'm really interested in working during the day and going to night school in graduate school. Right. And they said, no, no, you're on three days and off two. Right. And I said, wait, that I, I can't. You mean 24 hours? And they said, yeah, you all sleep right. here. I said, that isn't going to work. <laughs> and they said, so they turned me around, grabbed the guy, the fireman grabbed my shoulder, turned me around, and he pointed across the street. He said, see over there, it's the, that's the police department. That's said, they work eight hours and they go home. And I said, oh. So I started walking across the street, and I had the shortest haircut, you know, because I knew I was going to be applying for a public safety job. And the tan line showed, you know, where it was all white. So I walk into the police department, and they said, yeah, sit down. Are you a student at Michigan? I said, yeah. They said, oh, um, you know, in the 75-year history of this department, we've never had a graduate from Michigan apply for a job as a policeman in this city. Did we even apply? No. You have to know how liberal that school uh, well, I mean, yeah, it was. Right. It's an extremely liberal school. So you would not uh, – that, that makes complete sense to me, but it's still a little surprising. But, right. You know, still you, you figure that someone went to school there that was a little, you know, on the square side, like you said, and, and – Wow. It, it's all medical lawyers okay. and and the Spartans. Michigan State is the one that had a police science administration uh, okay. school, Got it. right? Got it. So there are plenty of people in East Lansing Police Department that had people who graduated from right. state who walked in and got jobs. Not Michigan. So they said we've never had in our seventy-five year history one graduate from That's University amazing. of Michigan That's that amazing. came here to apply for a job. And in the last two weeks, we've had five. Oh, and I said, "Is this a sociology project? What, you know, what, why are you here?" And I said, "Well, I don't know about the other four. So, <laughs> as it turns out, all five of us were accepted. There was a fourteen-week recruit school with about a dozen of us. And you know, of the five people that were in that class, I'm the only one that left. And you haven't heard that story yet, but I went to go to school." for a master's program at the University of Pittsburgh for a master's in forensic oh. chemistry. The other four completed 30 years of, of service there. They were lifers. They They're went wow. through the entire, yes, they were career people, and they did great. They, it was wonderful. So the strange story of going because you wanted to get a deferment from, from Vietnam. From Vietnam. Worked out for all five of you. Yes. So, you know, you're impacted by history. There are historical events that... Yeah. that drive the course of your career and that was certainly the turning point for me well, and, well but you said you got went to uh the chemistry uh, program in um, at pitt pitt yes what did you study in undergrad <laughs> at michigan um i had a bachelor of science in english and okay so yes i i had um Liberal. seven <laughs> no 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 i had seven <laughs> semesters of chemistry 
Um, oh, okay. Had a falling out with the chemistry department over a, a PCHEM, a second year PCHEM class. I hated PCHEM. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. well, I did too. So I had a lot of chemistry, and so when the time came, I walked across campus to Shakespeare professor that I'd had for a couple classes. And I said to him, okay, that's it. And he said, you look a little upset. And I said, well, I just had a falling out with the chemistry department. And they said, yes, they would allow me to drop my PCHEM class in exchange for never taking another chemistry class at the <laughs> University of Michigan. And so I dropped the F-bomb on him and walked out. And I thought, wow, I think I just cut off my opportunity to get a degree in chemistry here at Michigan. So what do I need in order to get an English degree? And he said, um, well, it's, let's look at all the English classes you've taken. As it turns out, I was only two classes short. So in my following semester, I finished the English requirement, right. went to the registrar's office, and they sat me down, and they said, okay, let's see. Well, um, you're going to get a BA in English. And I said, yeah, that's right. And they said, oh, you've got more than 60 hours of science. You qualify for a Bachelor of Science. I said, how can you get a Bachelor of Science that's, in English? And they said, well, we... We do. So in answer to your question, did I have chemistry back on? Yes, but, you know, I was such an anti-authoritarian. I was a perfect candidate for being a policeman because the only two personalities in the police department were the people who would shoot first and ask questions later, and then the others of us who would rather negotiate and talk this out before we, you know, got violent. Strangely enough, one, I had partners when we were riding in double cars. And we got along fine. The anti-authoritarians and the really strict authoritarians had a, a tacit agreement, and, and we did really well. So what would happen is that we would go to a call, and people would be arguing, domestic argument, and the wife would have a frying pan. and you know. So I'd walk in, and he'd say, okay, you. He's pointing. He wouldn't call me by my first name. You. So I started talking, and if there was still crap going on, and I couldn't get them to settle down then he took over and so it was a nice it was a nice arrangement but um i, I don't mean to minimize um you know the significance and the danger that the anarchy policemen have to do every day and i learned a lot it was really an incredible experience and i started off doing something just for me i wanted a deferment and i wanted to go to school and i was going to earn some money and I had no expectation that I would ever discover that law enforcement was personally rewarding for the benefit that you give to other people. Helping right. other people out was something that I never expected would be rewarding to me. And then I discovered the challenges that are going on when you get to a crime scene and all of this valuable evidence is going to waste because nobody knew what to do with it. And I had a brother-in-law who was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and he sent me a little tiny clipping out of their city, their school newspaper that said, LEAA starts new program at the University of Pittsburgh Chemistry Department Law School and the Pittsburgh and Allegheny County Crime Laboratory starting a program for forensic scientists. And he said, would you be interested in this? I said, I don't know. So I called, and it turns out they were giving fellowships and grants, LEAA money. So as it turns out, the university was using LEAA money to fund police with chemistry backgrounds. Oh, all those police with the chemistry yes. backgrounds. Yes, so if you had a chemistry, right. you had any, well, there, are, well, there were only 10 of us across the country who were in my freshman class or right. my, my first year class in graduate school. 
Um, but all of us had similar backgrounds. And so what they did was to say, okay, if you're interested in forensic chemistry, we need people who understand chemistry, but also are currently police officers. And if you're a policeman with a chemistry background, we have money for you. So that was perfect because... I mean, that's absolutely amazing. I, well, it was well, coincidental. And, so. and that, that led into uh, you really kind of leaving the beat cop duties and getting into serology. Yes, exactly. All right, we're going to take a little break right here for a word from our sponsor this week. Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories is a full-service independent forensic lab that specializes in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, private investigators, prosecution, and defense cases. GoEvidence is committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in the industry. Their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. Your direct source to vacuum metal deposition technology. They can process your cold case evidence with VMD. They provide sales, service, and training. They can help you get older VMD systems back up and running. And uh, they can provide assistance and training in using new VMD technology or even uh, assist in uh, research projects with VMD. Brian and Scott are passionate about the technology and always enjoy the chance to talk about the capabilities of VMD, VMD systems, consumables, and tips on maximizing the process. Standard turnaround times on most cases is two weeks and consultations are always free. So go check them out at GoEvidence.com. All right, now back with the interview. But back in those days, I mean, we got all this fancy DNA stuff where we can tell you, know, tell you which exact person left it from, you know, a couple dozen cells. Back then, you're just basically <laughs> type A, B, and O, Yes, right? it was A, B, and, and when you had reproducible results in ABO testing, that was a miracle because it was <laughs> witchcraft. ABO testing is probably one of the hardest um, systems to to effectively work on because there are so many contaminants and the technology that we were using was very gross. It took a lot of of um, stain material and it was easily degraded with bacteria. So it was a minefield to take stains that were you know dried blood and body secretions and manage to get clean reproducible results and controls unstained controls that would give you good clean results. The antibodies themselves that we were using were um, not particularly specific, and there were a lot of contaminating things. So it was a real challenge. And that was one of the reasons that I loved it so much is that it was so hard to do. And we thought there's got to be a way to make this more reproducible. Right. So we began processes, and we thought, why are we investing all of this time with ABO with a discrimination power that was horrible? 90% of the population was either type A or type O. Right, ninety percent. You know, forty-five percent for one and forty-four percent for the other. Whatever it is, at least in the Caucasian population, when you got a rare uh, type like AB, it was wonderful. But you only happen rarely, so that wasn't a real solution to the majority of the criminal evidence coming to the laboratory. And we knew that hemoglobin was had um, hemoglobin S, but you had to use. Uh, cellulose acetate membranes to do it and it didn't work very well on stains over two days old three days old but we heard about scotland yard the metropolitan police laboratory and a guy named brian culliford who was the senior principal Mm. scientific officer who'd published a book in 1964 an orange book that was the metropolitan police manual and it had multiple genetic marker systems in there. PGM was one, and Esther is D. I think I know that 
phosphoglucomutase yes, one. Yes, that's exactly right. M2, M1, two. Yes. Uh, Jay Siegel was my professor at Michigan ah, State. Ah, perfect, so, yes. I as love, you might imagine, yes, I taught us that. I stuff. love Jay. Yeah. So I thought, okay, if there's any chance that I'm going to accelerate in this field, I'm new to the laboratory, I had um, a master's in forensic chemistry and had just started working for the Michigan State Police. The okay. Ann Arbor Police Department doesn't have a crime laboratory, and the nearest building was in Plymouth. Right. So I went to work in the laboratory in, in Plymouth, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could find out what they're doing at Scotland Yard? And so I heard that Brian Culliford was going to give a class in George Sensabaugh's lab at Berkeley, mm-hmm. It was a weekend class, and so I flew myself out there for the class, and I stayed in a hotel, and the first evening on Friday afternoon, Brian Culliford showed up, and he was this incredibly animated guy, and I walked back with him to his hotel. I had already heard that he was a pretty big beer drinker, and I thought (laughs) that I would just, you know, buy a round or a couple rounds of beer and then give him my plan. And my plan was to find a way to get an invitation to come to his laboratory to learn all of these methods from the world's best and then come back to Michigan and we could apply those techniques. So um, it worked out fine. And he said, well, you can probably learn all these methods in two months. And I said, wrong answer. No, no, no. It can't be so short as two months. You know, how about a year? And so he said, how about six months? And I said, okay. So I went back to Michigan, and I said, I need to have your support to go to London for six months. Are you kidding me? This is Michigan State Police. I said, London, isn't that in England? London, Ohio? Yeah, right. You know, one thing led to another, and I actually got the opportunity. It was a five-month sabbatical in 1975, and I spent five months being tutored by a lot of people whose names you know you might recognize um brian raxel was one of them so i came back home and two years later of all people ben grunbaum uh, approached me and said we would like to use leaa money law enforcement assistance administration it's since become nij Um, but at the time i didn't know that that was the precursor nij yes I had no idea. Yeah, Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. So they paid for my for my school at Pitt, and now they were willing to fork up money for what was going to be um, a blood stain analysis system, the BAS, and they were going to fund research that would be under Ben Grunbaum's laboratory in Berkeley, and he was looking for two people who would do the research part uh, comparing cellulose acetate and gel methods. And I said, well, you know, the world's best gel methods are done at Scotland Yard at the Metropolitan Police Laboratory. I think I know somebody who might want to spend six months here. So I gave Brian Raxel a call, and he said, watch him, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably see him doing that. Yeah. So he's so he came over, and we were going to work this thing for six months or so until it was over. Well, at the end of six months... Oh, this is another request that I had of the Michigan State Police. Oh, I just came back from London. I'd like to go to Berkeley for six months. <laughs> so, and they did. They were, they were wonderful about it. So um, we did that project, and it became the multi-system with mm-hmm. uh, 
a dozen genetic markers in three boxes, an alkaline box, an acid box, and a neutral box for you know, the isoelectric point of protein separation. Yeah. And, and these are all just looking at little differences in proteins and enzymes and things that exist, but not DNA at that point. No, we're not, no, no, no. Right, this right. is that, all pre-DNA. That, exactly. Just to be clear for the listeners that don't have yes. that background, you guys were essentially trying to get everything you could that was differentiable out of the blood. Right before there was actually use of DNA. Yeah, so DNA actually confers uniqueness with the exception of identical twins. So you're getting the the original material, and there's so much variability across human DNA that with a single analysis, you can can define markers that discriminate almost to the individual, again, with the exception of identical twins, um, with single-source samples. So we had the same driver, and that right. was how do we increase the discrimination from ABO right. that has a discrimination power of 1 in 3 yep. to 1 in 500, which is roughly the discriminating. 1 in 500 is the chance that you would have a randomly individ, two randomly unrelated individuals having exactly the same set of alleles across a dozen genetic markers. It was protein and enzyme markers, but that's the most that the science had had evolved and remember you know this is the ni- this is the early that was 1977 that we had the berkeley project it's probably only been less than 10 years since polymorphic enzymes were being used even by metropolitan police so it was very rapid development and it would be another 10 years before dna was discovered and reported by alec jeffries in nature in 1985 so during that interim eventually um, there were something on the order of 135 laboratories in the united states who were using this method so I never thought of myself as a researcher, but ultimately what was driving me wasn't doing the casework. It was watching other people do casework with techniques that we were developing right. with you know, federal research dollars. Then after we did that, we didn't have any databases. So we got another grant to study 16 markers in Detroit population of 500 African Americans and 500 Caucasians. Mm-hmm. You needed to be able to demonstrate what the frequencies were in order to go to court. And, um, you know, this seems like ancient history, but it's, it's the beginning of what would be done 10 years later in DNA. Yeah. Right, That's right, exactly right. what would happen. Right. And, and then we had all of these admissibility hearings. Um, Kansas versus Washington was one of the early ones, and Ben Grumbaum showed up to say, oh, this is no good because they didn't use my method of cellulose acetate. They used these gels, and they're not reliable. So he came as the defense expert to testify against it. Well, that was a rehearsal for what would eventually take place in the world of DNA wars. Right. So it was, you know, I mean, you, you had no way of knowing while you were in the throes of it that ultimately it would have an impact on the unfolding, the evolution of forensic biology in the United States. But here we are today with 17 million profiles in CODIS. Yeah. You know, it's, it seems like just... Um, just yesterday. Just right? yesterday. You know, like I woke up this morning and I thought, wait, we were just doing that. <laughs> it wasn't yesterday. It was 35 years ago. But um, anyway, so the, the confluence of all of these activities, uh, I'm really, really lucky to have lived through and been a part of this evolution in forensic biology that took me from doing simple casework with ABO stains to an opportunity to learn somebody else's technology and then come and develop it for small laboratories to be able to do this three-box multi-system technique, uh, which they never adopted in the UK. They had 40 people at the MATLAB, and they did the systems one at a time Mm. until the very end. Mm. 
And, and you say lucky, though, but what's interesting, I mean, we just had several other podcasts we've recorded yeah. you know, this week, and a common thread through all these is the initiative and drive. And you, oh, yeah. And you had that. I mean, you had the initiative to you know, contact this guy and go and do this and look into this and then go to the bur- So, I mean, there is the, you know, obviously the support that you had from, you know, Michigan State Police, but you also had the initiative and that drive to get involved in that. And that's, that's a common theme we've heard from successful people in forensics who are making huge changes to the discipline. Eric, that's one of the reasons why I love talking to Glenn so much, <laughs> because he thinks of this as drive and initiative, and he rewards me by <laughs> saying this. This is simply a personality trait of being ADHD, and I was so bored with doing regular casework. I wanted something that I hadn't done the day before, and part of the blessing of research is that you're discovering new things. There's always something new that needs to be researched. There's something that needs to be experimented. And when you don't know the answer ahead of time, one of the nice things about forensic biology is that you get an answer in the morning. Yeah. yeah. So there's no there's no delay. It's not like waiting or writing a book and say, well, six months from now when I finally get the book done. But but the difference is you say, I can get that answer. So many other people just go, well, someone needs to figure that out. Someone needs right. someone <laughs> needs to answer that. <laughs> Okay. But I mean, that's, or, or that's accepting, the or not even asking the question, and just accepting the the current state as the, just how the it is. as just the way it will always be. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do again encourage people to go onto uh, that that page that's kind of described. This is a page you wrote describing your history uh, over the course of your career, um, because we're gonna. We're going to skip over a whole bunch of stuff to kind of get to, back to talking about OSAC, your, your involvement you know, beyond serology uh, in other aspects of, of DNA analysis. You were, big cases. Some big cases, and you were just talking before we hit record on the show that, that you enjoy this podcast environment way more than you ever enjoy being interviewed for like the O.J. Simpson case, <laughs> uh, which you had said that you... you, you just you didn't really enjoy that interview process uh, at the time. Uh, the Unabomber case, so many other big cases through American history. Uh, again, just in our format, there's just too much to even cover and all that. But this history lesson has been—it's been really fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. it's it's good because again, it helps listeners put things in the perspective of where, like you said, where we are today with all of these profiles, where we are with CODIS. Sure, but. And it's it's been these every ten years, just giant leaps in the evolution to move forward in that. So, with now OSAC being established and you 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 directing uh, this this project over the past few years, you kind of talked about how OSAC came and evolved to be what it is. But it, that evolution's continued as these groups have met and started putting things together. So I, I'm curious to your perspective on uh, the differences between OSAC and the SWIGs that came before and, uh, and what you've seen over these past few years OSAC doing uh, to, to benefit the larger forensic community in the U.S., but also abroad as well. That's a great question. And for those people who have been involved throughout the four years of uh, OSAC's evolution, it has been a steady increase in the rate at which we have figured out a framework that allows people with such diverse backgrounds Mm -hmm. to sit together to talk about 
the development of standards and research gaps that are missing in demonstrating the validity of the uh, underlying science behind uh, each of the disciplines that are the 25 disciplines represented in, in OSAC. To respond to your question about how is this different from scientific working groups and the SWIGs, what is it that is noteworthy about the culture and personality of OSAC that might make it a long-term, ongoing, successful undertaking for the forensic science industry to help uh, create viable, consistent standards that are harmonized across the country, but also harmonized across disciplines. The and, NIS and actors, too. I mean, in the criminal justice system, defense, lawyers, judges. I mean, it, and that's what's great is it's not just the practitioners here. It's all the different actors in the criminal justice system. Yes. So, and you've anticipated really the, the uh, what I was trying to draw from the NAS report that had 13 recommendations. And OSAC addresses maybe four or five of yeah, them. Absolutely. There were criticisms like the standards in this field are not as good as they should be. There were scientific working groups, but they were insular, and they didn't communicate outside of a group of practitioners, a good old boy network that set standards that could be met for the people who were using those standards. So uh, there was a criticism, unfair in many cases, that the standards were set so low that the people who were going to apply these standards would be able to do so comfortably. Mm-hmm. And that I understand the criticism, but I'm not sure that it's warranted. But that was a criticism. So part of it was, well, you've got standards, but they were developed um, by the people who are doing it themselves without input from other people. So, And the standards in, in DNA are fabulous, and they are the gold standard, and there's nothing wrong with DNA <laughs> testing. But, you know, bite marks really sucks. So, I mean, this report, the NIS report, was in many respects um, hard-hitting because it was so critical but it was also the precision of the target practice that was being done on forensic science wasn't yeah. altogether that, that accurate. And as we know, DNA has a lot of problems, but it does have good, strong underpinning from genetics and molecular biology and so forth. So we have this wide range of really good quality processes that go on in crime laboratories and some not quite so good and certainly ones that even if they're reproducible and they're reliable there is a lack of scientific um, foundational publications of peer-reviewed data sets that demonstrate to an independent observer, like an academic researcher, why we're so confident in the results that we get. So there are big gaps. And so that was one criticism. The fragmentation across the country and across sciences needed to be tightened up, and they proposed a National Institute of Forensic Science that would have the responsibility for harmonizing quality and standards and education and toning down exaggerated um, testimony and reports and blah, blah, blah. So they, all, of all these recommendations, it turns out... And that was the number one recommendation. And, and not by accident, that was the number one on the list. Yes, it was. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, number one was form a National Institute of Forensic Science. Well, Which, that was right after the days of DHS being formed. Yep. And, and, yeah. and there was no appetite at the federal level for creating right. another agency. So, right. um, you know, so that didn't happen. But it left then to science agencies and 
DOJ, the nation's prosecutor, how we're going to solve the problem. So there are a lot of other agencies, but none that really have a dog in the hunt the way DOJ does. And NIST had a long history, going back to Wilmer Souter in 1935, of being you know, sort of a national crime laboratory. Well, then they got out of that business, but they've always contributed technological development and standards assistance in developing standards. So it was the right agency to do the science side. Yeah. And I yeah. feel very comfortable um, only having been at NIST for 10 years. I'm a rookie. We have a lot of lifers who are 40, 50 <laughs> years old. You know, and so I'm still called rookie there, even though I've been there for 10 years. Um, so there's a long history of science at NIST, and, and they're not a regulatory agency, and they don't have a crime laboratory. So it's not the fox watching the hen house. Yeah. And one of the criticisms in the NAS report of the FBI was, God, we love the FBI, and they're so good, and blah, 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 blah. But if you're looking to them to develop the standards and to regulate, this is another example of the fox in the hen house. So. And, and, and that's basically the funding for all the SWIGs came through the FBI. The FBI and NIJ. Right. right. So, so what happened was in 2013, NIJ said, okay, you know what? This is the end of funding the SWIGs. We're going to look for another model. And it was right on the heels of this memorandum of understanding between DOJ and NIST. And NIST said, we're going to develop, it started out as guidance groups. They didn't know what to yeah, call it. We, they didn't uh, want to call it swigs. Yes, we, I know. We, we mentioned. Okay, so <laughs> I mentioned uh, in a previous interview uh, this evening. Uh, for the listener, uh, Glenn and I are just blitzing through interviews with, with the opportunity <laughs> to be together in the same room and not have to call each other over the phone, and to have a wealth of expertise and variety of different people to interview. We've taken advantage, and this is our third interview of the evening. Good. Well, I'm sorry so, to have have ruined your string. Oh no, no, no. this is this is fantastic. <laughs> but um, we we did mention guidance. We did mention guidance groups earlier yes. uh, in the evening, and from a comment when I when I talked when I approached you and asked if you'd be interested in this interview, JP was also there with you, and I made some sort of comments about guidance groups, <laughs> and I, I seem to have gotten the impression from JP that that you guys may have heard Glenn and I discussing that we didn't like the term guidance groups with the abbreviation GGs. Did, <laughs> did, did, did our comments over the Double Loop podcast make it all the way up to the halls of NIST to, to change it in, from GGs just, just to Just tell them yes and, and make them feel... All right, yes, that's, that's what happened. That's we, what we heard, yes, we were sent a recording from uh, Intel... <laughs> And I can't, I'm not allowed to reveal the three-letter agency that sent it to us, but Same as soon as they, yeah. Yeah, perfect. That's no, the, the, actually, it's, it's a uh, terrifyingly simple answer as to where OSAC came from. We knew that we couldn't use scientific working groups. It had to be a change, and we needed to be able to demonstrate that it's an organization of groups. And so they said, oh, well, in the early legislation, actually used the term guidance groups. One of the budgets that supported, one of the budgets that supported the $3 million to start OSAC um, said that there will be $3 million given to DOJ that will be passed along to NIST in order to develop a framework for guidance groups. So guidance groups was not a good name, not for the reason that you said, but it, <laughs> it lacked the word science. And remember... I have lived through starch wars and then DNA wars. And one of the things the adversary system likes to point out continually is that real scientists have PhDs. 
and the people who come to court and testify are only technicians. And I can cite Michigan versus Young yeah. that called me a police detective <laughs> in, and disallowed my testimony despite the fact that I had firsthand knowledge and could give not hearsay testimony but actual testimony of how the multi-system technique was developed. They threw it out and they counted only the testimony of George Sensabaugh and the testimony of uh, Ben Grunbaum. And so there is well, a long standing. Like I got to get to work. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, like I see. Go that. Testify. I know, I know, you know. So in any case, whether it's the influence of the adversary system and judicial rulings that made us sensitive to wanting to have the word science in the title, that was the beginning. We, we wanted to have science. Well, because there were already scientific working groups, which, by the way, didn't start out as scientific working groups. Well, they were, they were working, twigs, right? technical working groups, and they had the same hiccup. Yep. And they decided, okay, that's the end of this. We are no longer calling ourselves a technical working group. We are a scientific working group. Well, if the courts are impressed with the fact that you're using the word science in your title, who am I to say? Yeah. Right, exactly. So we said, well, how can we, what are you going to have? Well, we need to have an organization, and it has to have the word science in it. Um, we couldn't use scientific working groups, so how about scientific area committees? And they said, well, what's the acronym for that? OSAC. Well, it turns out there are 22 other OSACs when I Googled it, but it's okay. We're now the, we're now the, one, the most prominent. We figured we'll just rise to the top of Google and to hell with the other 21. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's I'd like to give you some really stunning, spectacular decision right, right, of right. a conference of people who who arrived at this name. <laughs> we were sitting around a coffee table and you know, that's we made great. this decision. So that's how OSAC came about. Well, we, and then we got done we with OSAC and said, you know, and I have to credit Karen Rezik for this. She said how do you know that it's for forensic science? That's what I was my, one of my all, all time questions. Of, exactly. Of yeah. So now it's the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science. Yeah, I saw that in the logo uh, this week. I don't remember seeing it or noticing it before. Right. Well, it's um, it's only been added to the logo after a year of not being in the logo. So we okay. so in the second year, second to the fourth year, it's now had for forensic science underneath. But it screwed up the acronym, yeah, so we're still OSAC. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, look, not all things are perfect, right, 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 know, right. and well, it's, it's, especially in government work. Right. right. I, you know, the fact that we even have a name that people can remember now, uh, OSAC, is an accomplishment. So, um, you know, and when people hear the term OSAC, they can associate standards with it. But I, I did want to come back to the point that um, this is a long time ago. You asked me the question, but the initiative for the the genesis of OSAC was based in large measure on addressing the criticisms and the recommendations in the NIS report. So we wanted to have harmony. We wanted to have consistency. We wanted to be all-inclusive. We wanted to get rid of the concept of frag large fragmentation across disciplines. The other thing was the fragmentation among jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. I am a big fan of state sovereignty. Don't want anyone to think after hearing this podcast that I don't believe that the states should have their constitutions and the laws that they enforce and that 95% of all the forensic science done in this country is done at the state level. Right. So it is what it is. But the geopolitical reality of having 400 government crime laboratories with something like 250 jurisdictions makes it really hard to have uniform changes from Monday, from Friday afternoon to Monday morning. And there are other 
countries in Western Europe, for example, that can make a change yeah. you know, on one day, and the next day, every laboratory in the country has made that change. In this country, we have 17,000 police departments, 400 crime laboratories. So I get the criticism that, you know what, what one set of laboratories does in one state system, it may be years before it's done uniformly across the country. So that was a big challenge. We wanted to have everybody together in the same place at the same time. How many people does it take? Well, how many disciplines are there? How many people do you want in addition to the SWIGs, forensic scientists who were part of the original SWIGs, how much do you want to expand this? Well, we need researchers, people who actually have a good idea of experimental design when they're doing validation studies to fill those gaps. We need to have educators because we have graduate forensic science and undergraduate forensic science programs. So we have educators there. We need someone to represent the criminal justice system so that they have an opportunity to communicate what their concerns are from the user perspective. Right. Um, and we need to disabuse the mythology that occurs in the adversary system. And one of the best ways to do that is inclusion. So we get them to participate in the process. Then we also have the bias issue that was raised in the NS report. So we have the Human Factors Committee. Then they said, you know, we don't have enough laboratories accredited. And oh, by the way, we also don't have enough certification. Only 25% of the people who practice forensic science in this country are even certified. The other 75% aren't certified. Well, you can't even get a haircut without <laughs> a barber having to have a license, right? right? So, I mean, you've heard the argument. So, by the time you got done, we had 550 members of an organization. You know, and it's a good thing we have a $3 million budget. They said, how much is it going to cost, you know, to run this organization? We said, let's see, 550 times two meetings a year times... Um, <laughs> Seven people to administer this, their salaries. And they said, well, how about um, $3 million? And they said, oh, all right. There was no discussion. It was just said, well, how much is it going to cost? We said, it's going to cost $3 million a year. I think if you had said seven or I know, 10, I know. You know. So now I'm kicking myself. I thought, you know what? We, we had set up a, a national forensic science uh, OSAC building in, in Oh, in, all right. So in, actually, in there, was, you know? <laughs> there was a conversation that was had um, with our group and... Dr. Pat Gallagher, who was the NIST director at the time right. that OSAC was being formed. And I still have the document. I gave him a pro forma budget that was $60 million to build the National Institute of Forensic Science wow. on the NIST campus. And he said, um, $60 million. He said, you know, our total budget is only $600 million. And for us to carve out $60 million in order to build, this is not going to happen. So I said, well, I thought that was a little on the high side, but um, you know, let's go from let's go from there. So, so the range was anywhere from you know a million dollars to sixty million dollars, depending on what you wanted to build. Right. And I was only asked for the data, so I didn't have to make the decision of what to fund. But I think, as it turns out, what may have been considered by some as a windfall for three million dollars, we stretch and squeeze every dime out of that three million dollars in order yep. to get. Uh, the support for meetings every nine months of 600 people plus uh, 75 invited guests. And it's split into two. So we had a meeting just like the one in Phoenix that right. we're here today doing. There was one a month ago in Houston that were the other half of the OSAC organization. So it, it takes a lot of uh, operational support. And the dollars, I think, are being spent wisely. 
And you heard uh, John Paul give the stories about the bad weather and all of the other things that happened that are proof that we're saving taxpayer dollars at every single meeting that we go to. Oh, absolutely. I've seen, over my years being involved, I definitely see how uh, just to get, I mean, there's so many disciplines that need to meet, and you you get 20 or so people together uh, to discuss these issues, hammer it all out. And that's you know including all this time that's spent uh, not in per, you know face to face communications but over uh, emails, over conference calls, getting as much done as possible there, and meeting in person to really hammer out the details. There is a cost in all that, and and uh, man, you guys have have, uh, have really like you said stretched every dollar to make this possible to do as many meetings and get as much done uh, with basically all volunteers coming to put this all together. It, exactly. And the key is what you just said was all volunteers. We, you know, we have a staff of half a dozen people who are, their day job is helping to run OSAC. But the hundreds of people who are participating in this organization have day jobs and they're volunteering their time. And they are a blue ribbon you know, they represent, in some cases, the world's experts in each of these areas in, in the law and in um, psychology for human factors and in each of the forensic science disciplines that we have, the metrologists from NIST, the statisticians that we have. These, this is a confluence of people who have incredible expertise. And if you figure out what the dollar amount is for the time that they're donating here, and that their employers, the government crime laboratories, giving them a week to spend here, it is millions of dollars worth of donated time and effort that brings together that, that, this that, That's a really good point. That's so, a very good point. It, it, it just getting dinner and drinks uh, at the, uh, the restaurant here uh, at the resort, and even just walking past the amazing conversations by the world's best in, in all of these fields is... Uh, Especially thing. <laughs> there you go. Especially the fingerprint. Yes, yes. But um, no, also just randomly sitting down at a table with some uh, question documents guys uh, yeah, last right. night. Yeah. It really is amazing the group of people that have gathered together to, to, to put this all out. Well, I uh, wanted to bring up uh, something that we had heard, and one of the reasons we wanted to get you to you know, come on the podcast here is we had heard you are retiring. Truth to that rumor? Yes. It um, has finally happened that I have recognized the need to be able to walk out of the building under my own power um, and still have time to travel the world and do things with my wife. So, you know, at the age of 72, I, I was trying to figure out how old I was going to be when it was time for me to be turned out to pasture. And I I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me to to leave at a good point, and I think that we've reached critical mass in OSAC, and there are so many really well-experienced and highly talented people. And it sounds like we're not giving due credit to all of the hundreds of people who've made this organization what it is today. And I can easily back out at this point, and what is left is the same hole in Lake Michigan when you take a bucket of water out. So that's an easy replacement, and we have really talented people who are going to step in and do it. The other thing is that I finally figured out a way, in my mind, not to simply go to leave the field cold turkey 
And the chair of the Forensic Science Standards Board at OSAC, uh, Steve Johnson, was kind enough to offer me an affiliate status on the Outreach and Communications Task Group. And this is a group responsible for spreading the word and trying to get endorsement and adoption of the standards on the OSAC registry. This is something that I would love to do, and I'm very happy to be able to spend the next year in whatever role uh, I am offered in order to try to be a spokesperson as an ambassador for OSAC. And that's really what it is. I mean, you'll be going to these agencies and and explaining to them why it's important to adopt these and what's coming and the value of this. In fact, just it's one of the, the things that I appreciated when you guys were choosing these different groups. One of the genius things I thought was including the quality assurance group because that is your intrinsic enforcement mechanism. Yes. I mean, and by having that buy-in, it's great because they will go back to the quality assurance community and go, here are our new standards. It's, it is the only way internally we can enforce these things. Right, right. And, and, and by you preemptively going and being this ambassador that gets the message out there and helps uh, pave the road. For that, exactly. For that. Well, and one of the designs that we had was in including five representatives from the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors to be on the Quality uh, Infrastructure Resource Committee. And the reason is they wanted to be able to communicate impact of these new standards that are going to be implemented or adopted on laboratories and to be able to give warning to ASCLAD um, to prepare for standards coming down the road. And in order to do that properly, we opened our arms and and invited five of them. So we had 15 people originally on the Quality Infrastructure Committee, Resource Committee, and we we moved it five higher. We made it, um, I'm sorry, there were originally 10, and we moved it up to 15. And the reason is simply because it's so critical to have the buy-in of the people who are going to be impacted immediately by these new standards. And they embraced it. They said, yep, you want five people? We're going to give you five people. And sure enough, they've they've been good to keep it up. The other thing is that the professional forensic science organizations represent Mm. the six who are on the OSAC, the representatives who are on the OSAC, uh, represent 21,000 forensic scientists in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And more than th- of the 400 government crime laboratories, 300 of them have representatives at the OSAC meeting on on our membership. And so That's you have incredible. 75% of them, and, and you're absolutely right. If you want to have um, standards implemented in laboratories, you need to have the quality managers intimately involved. Yep. And I thought it was a very wise stroke for the recommendation given to us. You have got to include quality managers in the program. Yeah. So they've been a huge contribution to us. Mark, I'm speechless here of of uh, your your career, your history, the stories you've shared. I can't express thanks enough for you to sitting down, spending the hour here with us, uh, talking about your time from trying to get out of the Vietnam War all the way up to uh, to setting up uh, the foundations uh, of OSAC and uh, you know, the standards of all these forensic disciplines going forward. It, well, you, you can't believe what a thrill it is for me to find two people who are really interested in hearing any of these stories. So now the two of you... 
plus my mother make three people who have any interest at all in what I had to talk about. Yeah, your so. colleagues warned us. They, no. we, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure we have plenty of listeners that, that have uh, been been just enraptured with, uh, with with your stories here tonight. As the son of a, of a, of a guy that that uh, that tells the same stories over and over again, maybe it's just uh, you know good to hear new ones. But uh, um, uh, I, I've I've been I've been just thrilled to 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 hear your history and perspective on on all this uh, this stuff, and and uh, and hope you can look back on, uh, on an amazing career and and involvement in in so many different aspects of. Uh, of the development and improvement of uh, forensic science uh, over the over the course of your career. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to share some of these um, anecdotes with you. It's uh, I've really enjoyed your questions, and I think um, they've been critical to trying to bring together the pieces that led up to and what the ultimate future of um, on the forensic science industry that these OSAC standards represent. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Man, that's... This, honestly, Glenn, this is one of the, the more interesting interviews I think we've done. Not necessarily focused in on the fingerprint stuff, but such a... One of the broadest uh, career paths that uh, that we've we've come across in the interviews that we've done. Yeah, I, you and I both did a little bit of homework. You know, like we always try to do, learn a little bit about the background of our guests but I was—I I really was—I I was somewhat floored by oh my, you know, the 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 breadth of experience and yeah. just all the little stories and all the little nuances. I wasn't really wasn't quite expecting that. I mean, I just I thought I actually thought we were going to talk about a lot of boring policy stuff, but it was really interesting <laughs> to see how things got shaped and and where we are from just you know series of personalities, decisions, and just the timing of things. It was. It, like you said, very, very fascinating and interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was that was in there. You know, all the the, the backroom dealings and and uh, that that kind of stuff that got OSEC uh, off the ground and stuff. But um, man, what an interesting path to get there, Glenn. Uh, right now, you're you're getting ready to teach that class that you've been talking about for the past couple of months uh, with uh, Idemia um, yeah. this week. So. Uh, but what else do you have coming up here in the near future? Yeah, I'll, if anyone wants to check out classes coming up, go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And I am teaching a, uh, an advanced ACB class in Hackensack, New Jersey. That's April 8th through 12th. I'm teaching a half-and-half half class with John Black. That's where he teaches half. I teach half in Baton Rouge. That's the exclusion and sufficiency class. That's April 29th through May 3rd. For international listeners, uh, teaching a class with Alice Maceo for the Swiss police, but they open it up to other international guests. It's like a national course that uh, I, I've been teaching over there for a few years, and they're doing another one. This one uh, translated in German and French, but obviously I'll be speaking in English. And and then in July, we've opened up another class through Ron Smith and Associates, uh, that is, oh, I should mention that a Swiss class, contact me, just reach out to me and I can get you info on that one. And the class in uh, July 22nd through the 26th, that's another advanced ACB class, and that's in Dulles, Virginia. What about you, man? What you got coming up? Um, well, I still got that uh, exclusionology class uh, in April. 
I believe that's the 8th through the 10th, and then the 11th and 12th, the uh, gyro and Photoshop class, both in Hollywood, California, Hollywood, Hollywood, Florida, Florida, uh, the Florida. east side, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, go to Ray I'm Forensics. excited to hear how that one goes. I mean, I think that's going to be really, really cool. Yeah, and and uh, before we I get the the uh, actually do that class, uh, I'm hoping that we can plan out an episode where I, I talk in more details about kind of what's going to be happening in that class and uh, talk out uh, you know some of the stuff I've been working on with Photoshop. Oh, cool. Um, so and, maybe even a special content. Exactly, because it's going to obviously be more video oriented. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe get you to try out some of these uh, these tools and and uh, have that in those videos as well. With those, you can go to rayforensics.com for more information. I do have a couple other uh, things um, that are going to be coming out later in the year. I just uh, can't quite announce them yet. It's got some stuff that needs to fall into place first before moving forward. But definitely check back at rayforensics.com for more information soon. And uh, I think with that, we'll uh, close things out. You can uh, always contact us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Twitter, at Double Loop Pod. You can listen to us, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Give us some ratings, some reviews. We'll read them off on the air. Contact us if you want to help out as more of a, a closer relative of the more immediate family of the Double Loop Podcast. And uh, and we can, we can take whatever help you're willing to give. If you don't have the time, but you got... A dollar just laying around, you can send it our way through patreon.com. And uh, we definitely appreciate that as well. Uh, So the opinions and comments expressed are those of the speaker and not of anyone that we work for. And with that, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. (laughs) 